Hello and welcome to Parently, where we tap into the unique experiences and perspectives of parents to celebrate the joys and honor the challenges of child rearing. With new interviews each week, this is a podcast for moms and dads seeking an empowering community and a little levity. Now here's your host, Kelsey Higgins. Hello and welcome to Parently. We have a wonderful guest today talking about a topic that's probably long overdue for many of us. Dr. Alexandra Stockwell is known as the Intimacy Doctor. She is an intimate marriage expert who specializes in showing couples how to build beautiful, long-lasting, passionate relationships. She is the best-selling author of Uncompromising Intimacy and host of the highly acclaimed The Marriage Podcast, which I think is recently rebranded, which she can tell us about. Welcome to Parently, Alexandra. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So happy to have you here. Let's begin with a little history. Tell me about yourself. Where do you live? I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I live in Solano County, which is the least famous of the (laughs) Bay Area counties, but I'm right near Napa. Have you been there your whole life? No. I've lived in California for nine years and had been briefly for one weekend before that. I was born in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, and I did most of my growing up in a suburb of New York City. And then I've lived in Europe and up and down the East Coast, in Maryland for seven years, in Massachusetts for, I forget right now, 10 or 11 years, and then rural Kansas for two years on the way to the Bay Area where we are now. Wow, all over the map. Do you have a favorite place? Ooh, I've not been asked that. I've been interviewed over 150 times and no one asked me that question. It's a really good question. And I think what I would say is that I have things that were favorite in each location. Mm. I used to say my favorite was when we lived in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is about an hour's drive west of Boston. And one of the reasons that I loved it is because there are a lot of different cultures there. There are little mom and shop, mom and pop kinds of restaurants from, I don't know, like over 80 different cuisines. Mm. And it's probably the place that I've lived in adulthood, which has the biggest sense of community. I knew all of my neighbors and was friendly with them in various ways. And I don't know that I ever borrowed a cup of flour and two eggs, but I would have (laughs) if I had needed them. And I've lived in a lot of wonderful places, but I haven't lived anywhere else where that was the case. That's lovely. Community is so important. It makes such a big difference. Yes. Yes. So do you have any significant others, children? What's your what's your life look like right now? I've been married for 25 years to my husband. He and I met our first week of medical school and have more or less been together ever since. I say more or less just because it took about six weeks to clarify that we were getting together. <laughs> so that's been since 1993. I knew it when I met him, but it took him a little bit longer to realize that. He was definitely drawn to me and he loved talking to me and he loved how alive he felt, but it took him a little longer to realize and there was going to be romance too. But I knew it. I actually postponed our first date because there was somebody else that I wanted to spend some time with and I knew that once we went on our first date, that would be it for me. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. So we've been married for 25 years and we have four children. Our oldest is 25. She's in graduate school. And our youngest is nine years old, and he's in fourth grade. Wow, a a span there. Yes, given that this is parently, I I always, as a, I don't know when I started having this idea, but 
definitely as a teenager, I wanted to have my children in my 20s. I had an idea that having them in my 20s would mean I'd have more energy and be less formed as a person so that I could, it would be less painful to expand and accommodate a child because we'd be growing and developing together more or less. I don't see the world this way now, but anyway, I did then and I wanted to have my children in my 20s. And as it turns out, all by choice, no surprises, I've had children in my 20s, my 30s, and my 40s. And each of those decades has had something really spectacular that I'm so glad was part of my motherhood journey. That's really interesting. Can we take a minute? Can you tell me a pro of each decade and having a child in that decade, something that you enjoyed about having a child at that time in your life that you didn't experience otherwise? Absolutely. So I had my first child, my daughter, I have a daughter and three sons. When I was 28, I was actually just had completed my third year of medical school. And having a child in my 20s, there's a kind of, I don't want to call it innocence because it's only relative innocence compared to having children later, but there's a mm. a naturalness and like a an uncomplicated enthusiasm. I just, I trusted my body. I trusted my life. I felt very much like I was in the natural unfolding of of human nature, if you will. Mm. Maybe mm. that sounds a little philosophical. So if I'm super practical, I would say I just trusted myself. I figured, yeah, we're going to do this. And if there's somewhere to go, we just pile us up and get going. There's a kind of fearlessness mm. in that that I wouldn't have described as fearlessness at the time. That's why I'm hesitating in how I say it. I'm, I'm saying that more in hindsight. So at the time, I probably would have said there's an uncomplicatedness, a lack of complication to the whole process, which mm. was very, um, like, wonderful. Interesting. I like that. And then in my 30s, um, I would – and there's a big gap there because we had – well, I had a child at 30. We had two children, and my husband actually got a vasectomy, and then we – rethought things and he had a vasectomy reversal and we had more children. So there's a big gap between our second and our third, which is also the time when both of us finished our medical training. Mm. So in my 30s, I think that I had a steadiness and an ease and I was really not influenced by what other people were thinking or doing or how I looked like my my in motherhood felt like much more of an intrinsic process rather than in my 20s even though it was of course an intrinsic process there was a lot of looking at what other people are doing and mm. not that I necessarily did it the same way other people did but I was aware and kind of position myself on the landscape in relation to other parents. And when I was 37, I just really wasn't thinking about any of that at all. Mm, mm. I, I think that's really an interesting perspective. It, it, I, I would say that that probably goes beyond parenthood and, and motherhood. And in general, I think folks tend to become that way as they get older. Yes. And so there are real pros and real, we're not going through the cons of each. I don't know that we need to, but there are real pros and cons in each stage of life. And in my forties, my husband and I had actually decided we wouldn't have any more children. And then I had this experience where I just thought, no, no, we really should. So we gave it one try. We were both 43 and Matthew was conceived. And I would say that the main experience that I had through my pregnancy and birth and even parenting a, a toddler in my 40s is this deep appreciation, so much 
savoring and more present mm. because I, I, my identity as a mother was long since established and there was a way in which the smell of a baby and even the crying, I just, I, I felt actually much more able to love the child I had in my 40s. It's not that there was any lack of love when I had my other children, not at all, but like I really could settle into the experience because there was no part of me questioning, was I doing it good enough? Mm. I just didn't have that question when I had my last child at 44. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's very interesting. I, I appreciate you talking through that. What about you? Tell me how, like, which decade have you had your child or children? Uh, oh, Alexandra, I'm, nobody, nobody ever asks about me <laughs> on my podcast. I have, I have one guy, one little guy. I have a two-year-old toddler. I had him in my thirties. So we'll see what the future holds. I, I don't foresee myself having a child in my forties, but who knows? And I can tell you, I don't know how, I'm sure you you just figure it out, but I, I don't know how great of a parent I would have been in my twenties. So I just, I think it happened when it was supposed to happen. Yeah. You know, I feel that way definitely about my children and you could say there's no good time to have children and you could just as well say there's no bad time to have children because once that child is on the way you collaborate in making it work for everyone Mm -hmm. one of the 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 best pieces of advice that I was given when I was talking with my husband about when we wanted to have kids if we wanted to have kids etc etc was you're never going to be ready. If you wait until you're quote unquote ready, it's not going to happen because there's always going to be some other career goal or financial goal or something that pops up and you feel like, okay, once this is done, once this is done, I took that to heart. That was helpful in planning our family. I also think that the actual process of being pregnant and giving birth and I want to be inclusive for people who adopt and do surrogacy there's a there's definitely a way in which I'm saying pertains as well Mm -hmm. but in any case being pregnant and giving birth it's a portal it's a transformational experience it's like if you're outside a house you have to walk through the door to be inside the house just to communicate clearly. It's not like walking into a house is a good analogy for becoming a mother but or a parent. But I really think that there's a way in which until we've had a child, we can't feel ready because we haven't gone through the profound transformation, which is becoming a parent. You're so right. I couldn't agree more. That, that that is a good analogy. I don't I don't mind the house analogy. Okay. <laughs> you don't you don't know what's in the house until you get in. <laughs> that's right. In fact, that's very funny that you say that. My parents actually bought a home before they saw it inside. It's this funny story where they were in, they wanted you know what, maybe it's too off topic, but I'm just telling you that it was a an incredible experience because when they walked into this small home in a beautiful area that they hadn't seen until they'd paid for it. It was dusty and musty and there were so many treasures in there. It was an incredible experience. Ooh, very cool. Alexandra, let's focus back on you here. How did you become the intimacy doctor? I love that. I'll answer that question But I feel like this is a good time to just present something that I feel so strongly about. It's part of the context for why I'm really glad to be a guest on Parently. And that is that 
I really am devoted to and care deeply about children. And for me, the very best thing that I can do for children is teach their parents how to have absolutely fantastic relationships. And yes, Mm. that includes intimacy of all flavors. That includes emotional intimacy. That includes sensual, sexual, erotic intimacy. It includes communication. It includes feeling collaborative, being able to be fully expressed as an individual within the relationship. So I'll tell you how I come to be the intimacy doctor, but I also wanted to tell you why. Thank you for that. How and why do you think that the parent relationship impacts the child? There are all kinds of things in life that we know we need to learn, whether it's how to read or math or how to become a great golf player or how to run a business, like whatever it is, we have either academic instruction to learn it or we have models and mentors that we can emulate, imitate, Mm. And none of that matters unless we know how to have a healthy and affirming relationship with ourself and with other people in our lives. And the way that we either learn that or not is by experiencing how our parents interact with one another and with us. And There are all kinds of really outstanding parenting coaches who teach parents how to have good relationships with their children, and that does not necessarily carry over and really enhance, deepen, and make deeply nourishing the relationship between the parents. However, if I coach a couple to have a really fantastic relationship, that always carries over in the most expected and unexpected extraordinary ways to enhance the way those parents are relating to their children. We'll be back after a short break. Today's episode is sponsored by Strip. After several months of maternity leave, I am back to work which means I'm also back to wearing makeup. While I do enjoy wearing makeup, I have never enjoyed the process of removing it at the end of the day. Until now, I've been using a new product I love called Strip. It does more than just remove your makeup, though it does do that well. It is skincare that truly nourishes your face with nutrients and vitamins, leaving behind noticeably healthier looking skin. It's made up of clean ingredients and it doesn't have a zillion steps that, frankly, I just don't have time for. I've even shared it with family and friends and we all agree it leaves your skin feeling so soft and looking replenished. My favorite product is the Caviar Jelly Remover. It removes my makeup while hydrating with these fun bursting nutrient bubbles. Support your favorite podcast with an awesome product. Check out Strip and use my discount by visiting stripyourmakeup.com forward slash parently. Strip your makeup, not your skin. Now back to Parently with your host, Kelsey Higgins. So how did it all come together for you? You went to medical school. Did you practice as a doctor? I did. I was in medicine about 12 years, and I had my own small holistic practice north of Boston after I completed my training. And then the reason that I say about 12 years is because after that, I went on a kind of sabbatical and did some other things. I was a consultant. I worked for an insurance company. I just did a few things before completely letting go of working as a physician. Mm. And 
There's so many ways to describe this journey because it was multi-tiered. And I think one of the things that I want to say is that when I was an intern, I did a training that was basically a cultural sensitivity training because I worked in a health center where there were people from all over the world and we needed to know how to be respectful and there's like basic human respect and then there's culturally specific respect. So an example is that we had a lot of Southeast Asian patients and I learned that in some of the cultures there in Vietnam and different places, if you show someone the bottom of your shoe or the bottom of your foot, it's like giving the finger. And so mm. I learned to be culturally aware at a relatively superficial but important level so that I was not being disrespectful without realizing it and could practice medicine more successfully. So anyway, as part of this cultural sensitivity training, we each identified our own culture. And I come from a dynamic, smart, sassy New York Jewish family. And I thought, oh, well, that's my culture. But when I went through the exercises, I was really completely shocked to realize that my culture was, it was being a child of divorce. That when I would meet someone whose parents got divorced sometime between the ages of sit five or six and 12, I was nine when my parents got divorced, I would feel this kinship like, oh yeah, you get it. Like we came from the same culture. Mm. And this was very, very significant for me. And I started looking at all of my relationships and saw how being a child of divorce had colored how I interact with people, not successful or unsuccessful, but like the particular worries that I had and the particular things that I needed all came from being a child of divorce. And so this was one step in laying the path to the work that I now do. Another one was when I was in my mid-30s, around the time that I had my third child, I had my own medical practice. I was married, had a beautiful family. I'd paid off my medical school loans. And everything that I'd worked really hard for, I had achieved. And so I thought I would feel really satisfied. Mm. Like, okay, this is what I've been working towards. And now I get to continue to work, but enjoy it. And I just didn't really have that sense of gratification that I'd expected, which, by the way, I totally have now, now that I am a relationship and intimacy coach. I absolutely have that. Mm. And then one other stone in this path to what I'm doing that I want to share was on my daughter's ninth birthday. She is this expressive, vibrant, radiant, feminine, strong girl. And I watched her on her ninth birthday just be so full of joy and expressing it so freely. And on the one hand, that was so beautiful to behold. And on the other, it freaked me out because I realized that I had given that part of me up and didn't realize that I still hadn't reconnected with it and hadn't learned to feel joy as fully as I had before my parents got divorced. And so when I say I freaked out, nobody knew what was happening. My husband didn't even know until years later, but it showed me something. And I decided I w it was so important for me to reaccess a kind of joy and vitality. I didn't even really 
do it for me. But I was clear that my daughter was nine and living with me another nine years. If I didn't find more of my own joy and deliciousness, that she would necessarily start damping down hers because she was living with me and I was her role model. So mm. I was not depressed. I still smiled and laughed. This is something very subtle, but there's a way in which I had not felt as much joy as I knew was possible, and that had really been the result of needing to just tone down and be a little quieter as my family reorganized itself. So all of these different things all kind of work together to lead me to the path that I'm on. That's amazing. That's really profound. I commend you because I think it would be really difficult for a lot of people, probably myself included, to change courses like that, to recognize, first off, what's going on, and then to do something about it. it that takes a lot of courage. Well, I can talk about it now in this very clear way. This was not a clear process. The main thing that I knew is that I was very ambitious and had worked hard. And even when I was having fun, I had the sense that everything I did was a means to an end. Even having fun was the means to having a healthy family life, for example. And so the first move I made after this experience on my daughter's ninth birthday, which coincided with my awareness in practicing medicine, the first move I made was I went on sabbatical and gave myself permission to do what I felt like doing regardless of whether it had some other bigger purpose. So I still had three children, was running a household, was married. Like It's not like I had tons of free time, but time that I would have been working, I went and sat by the river. I napped. I took a painting class. I took a dance class. Like I just did things because it was nourishing and interesting to me. And this may sound very basic, but I've, and in fact, at the time I had a lot of shame about this. Like how could I walk away from medicine when I actually did like practicing medicine and isn't this kind of indulgent and pathetic? I kind of judge myself that way, but I've come to really understand that for any ambitious, hardworking, high-achieving woman, it really takes courage to slow down and see what our desire in the moment actually is. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about desires for new shoes or desires to plan a family vacation or like anything that has bigger ramifications. I'm talking about how do I want to feel today? And in order to even go anywhere with that question, I have to take a moment and think about how do I feel right now? And that was a question that was not so easy for me to answer. I could say, well, I feel like there's a lot on my to-do list, or I feel like it's time to make dinner. But it really took me some time to learn how to pay attention to how I feel in the sense of I feel open with a little hesitancy and uncertainty right now, or I feel disappointed, or I feel hopeful. Like, 
things that, sure, it's not new vocabulary for me, but it was new to slow down enough and honor my own experience in the way that I'm describing. That's really how I started. That's really neat. I think that it, it, it's easy to get caught in the cycle where day to day you're going through your life and letting external factors impact you and tell you what you're doing next and tell you how you're feeling without really taking that step that, that you're talking about and really understanding what's going on inside and I, I think that's difficult to slow down and allow yourself to feel those things. Yes, and I really deeply believe that having a fantastic relationship, both with oneself and with one's honey, that having a fantastic relationship is a completely learnable skill. And the main issue is that we don't, get that education. And that's why I'm really devoted to providing it. So when you're in communication with someone who slows down and honors their feelings and honors your feelings, something which seems so challenging shifts into being second nature. It's all learnable. Let's dive into this because I think if I understand your, your, um, I don't know if I want to call it teachings, but I think if I understand where you're going with this, I'm, I'm beginning to better understand your book title, Uncompromising Intimacy, because what I, what, what struck me about the title first was the fact that everyone always tells you to compromise, to compromise. That's the key to a successful relationship is to compromise. But you're kind of saying, whoa, 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 hold on. You don't, you don't need to compromise those pieces of yourself. Am I interpreting that correctly? You're interpreting it beautifully, absolutely correctly, because, yes, if you want a conflict-free, passion-free, bland companionship, compromise will definitely give you that. Mm. But if what you want is to be seen for who you are and cherished and express yourself and evolve and grow and have your relationship include that for both of you, then being uncompromising is really key because the thing with compromise is that you you adjust and accommodate so your partner is comfortable, but in the process, you leave aspects of yourself outside of the relationship. Mm. And so I also like to add that when I'm talking about uncompromising intimacy, I don't mean when I use the word uncompromising that you get your way all the time or that you don't take your partner's experience and concerns and values and desires into consideration. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is that where with compromise, you just kind of quiet, turn the dial down on something that matters to you. When you're being uncompromising, you bring all of who you are to the relationship and you learn to really invite and receive all of who your partner is. And then when both of you have all of the information, then you can decide how you're going to proceed. Mm. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And it's really, I just want to say, it's really important for erotic intimacy because if we're holding back parts of ourselves, that just makes those kinds of experiences less fulfilling. And there is no switch that we can just flip if we're compromising in our day-to-day interactions with our partner. We don't get to be expressed and connected and go really deep in the bedroom 
in an uncompromising way because like we're all connected with ourselves you know we we don't actually compartmentalize these kinds of things as much as we often think we do so what would be your your response to a couple who would say Alexandra, we want to spice things up. Mm-hmm. How do we spice things up? What would you say? Well, I have a few different suggestions, but one which is so simple to do and doesn't even take that long can really make a big difference as a starting trend, a starting shift in this direction, and that is to cultivate curiosity. Because if you think back to the experience of being in love, you have so much curiosity about your partner. What's their favorite vegetable? How did they get that scar? What were their childhood dreams for the future? Like, what's important to them? Like, we just have a kind of insatiable desire to know them better. Mm. And then, yeah, and then we get to know one another better. You might already know when you go to a restaurant what your partner's likely to order, what they're going to answer when you ask a particular question. And there's a wonderful safety and stability that comes with feeling that you know and are known by your partner. And that's particularly helpful and supportive when you become parents and there are so many things that can be a little chaotic that you have a kind of steadiness with your partner that really is beautiful. But if you let go of this kind of curiosity and your main questions are about logistics and children, then you are losing access to the passion. So to make this very actionable and practical, I suggest that you start asking your partner more questions and it's going to depend on your personality and your relationship and your partner's personality. What kinds of questions are good places to start? It might be more whimsical. It might be deeper. Some examples might be if you could be president of any country, which one would it be and what policies would you implement? Or If you could have dinner with any celebrity, alive or dead, who would it be and what would you ask them? So that's one kind of question that's more like intellectually engaging. You also could ask, what was the best part of your week at work last week? Or Mm -hmm. what's the most challenging part of your job right now? And these aren't invasive questions they're pretty open-ended and Mm -hmm. so the more you ask questions like this where there's no right or wrong answer it's very important that when you ask a question like this or for this purpose that you are a yes to the answer even if you don't really like the content you want to be a yes to the fact that your partner is opening up and sharing something from their inner world Mm. Mm mm-hmm Do you find it common that couples fall into these ruts where they may come to you or just in general trying to spice things up, trying to get over the hump? Um, Do you find that to be common in relationships? Yeah, I really see that a lot, but I need to clarify a little bit because There are the people who have what I call a toxic relationship where they're fighting, there's a lot of anger and or fear in the relationship, and they know it, and anyone who's going to spend time with this couple is probably going to know it as well. Then there are people who have what I call a termination relationship where they've already decided that once the children are grown, they're going to separate and In one study, it shows that in the United States, 24% of couples have that plan. One or both of them do. It's it's a pretty high number, right? Where they're basically just staying together for the children. So those, both of those groups, the toxic and the termination relationship, 
they do not have a lot of spice in their sensuality. Now, what I think is by and large the most common relationship, like we have an epidemic of it, is what I call the toleration relationship. And that really is the relationship which looks good on the outside and sometimes feels good on the inside, but basically is informed by compromise where no one really wants to rock the boat. People are nice to one another. They go on nice vacations. Like everything looks good or good enough. The children are being raised in a healthy home. And underneath, it ends up being what I call conflict-free and passion-free. Maybe not entirely passion-free, but this is the kind of situation where it's better than a lot of people. There's no like obvious problem. Mm. And especially if there are young children, it's very easy to think, well, we're just focused on the kids. Right. Or we're just focused on our career. But once this couple gets more time together, it becomes clear it's not just time that's the issue. And so my book, Uncompromising Intimacy, my podcast, which you're right, you mentioned earlier, I've changed the name since sending you the information. It's two <laughs> weeks now that it's called The Intimate Marriage Podcast. And all of my private coaching and online educational programs are for couples in a toleration relationship who want to experience passion, emotional intimacy, and uncompromising intimacy in a way that really works for both of them. Alexandra, I'm curious, what does, what does a private coaching situation look like? Mm. Well, it's extremely customized. And what I mean, I mean, there's some basic structural things which are the same, which I'll describe in a minute, but also the work that I do, because I'm not working with couples with like, they're not on the verge of divorce or major problems, they're often, their relationship is stable. And so what they need is typically unique. So I'll give some examples. In any case, private coaching with me, I used to ask people when they would reach out to discuss coaching, I'd say, well, do you know what Zoom is? Because I've been working on, on Zoom for years, long before the pandemic. <laughs> I don't need to ask that question anymore. But I work exclusively over Zoom with people all over the world and any time zone. And actually, sometimes people are like, well, we have to do this coaching in person. But there's something that I love about coaching couples. I also work with individuals on their relationship, but I specifically love coaching couples on Zoom because then they're in their own home, they're in their own space, they're with their own energy, and I can just be a guide, but they're they're not in my world, they're in their world, and I think that's beneficial for the work we do. So sure. if I'm going to work privately with a couple, we have a conversation ahead of time it's and talk about their relationship and what they desire, what they're currently experiencing. And then I can share what it would look like to close the gap from what they're experiencing to what they desire. And so the reason that it's fairly custom is because every couple's in a different situation. Sometimes what they really want is to figure out how to have more and better sex with one another. Mm -hmm. And other times it's about communication and really being able to feel seen and heard and most of all supported. It's kind of an amazing phenomenon that so many mothers, even when they're spouse is doing everything they can and can think of 
the mother doesn't feel supported by their partner. And there's what our partners are doing for us. And then there's also, we need to learn how to feel supported. So mm-hmm. um, maybe I'll stop there. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. It's it's interesting to think about what that might look like, but you're right. I suppose it's different for every couple depending on the goals and what they're trying to accomplish. I'll also say, though, that the Aligned and Hot Marriage Program, I have eight modules, and each module includes a video where I give some instruction and then a video where I tell the story of clients of mine who've utilized the lesson and transformed their relationship. And then some workbooks, which are really fun for a couple to do together. And so actually a lot of people will end up enrolling in the Aligned and Hot Marriage Program, which is a very systematic, step-by-step instruction in how to create emotional intimacy Mm. and about 80 percent of the time when a couple has more emotional intimacy the sensual erotic intimacy just follows without anyone needing to put more attention on it right right a follow-up question to that Mm -hmm. do the couples, the individuals need to be in the same place when they come to you in order to get value, meaning if one wants to try and put in the effort and the other one is like, hey, it's fine. I don't I don't want to rock the boat, as you said. Um, you know, we're getting by just fine. It's okay. Can you close that gap between individuals if their goals are not aligned? Often when I ask questions, and I've been doing this a long time, so I'm able to ask questions that bring out answers that they haven't shared with one another. That's common. Often they actually do have the same goals, even though they don't know it going in. And let me say what I mean. I have coached a lot of couples where in a heteronormative couple, she will say, I really, I want to make these changes. I I want to make love more often. I, I have this desire and that desire. And my husband, he's like fine with how it is. He doesn't really want to, like, he doesn't see the problem. Mm. And when I talk to him, most of the time, He wants exactly the same thing, but he's so sick and tired of feeling inadequate and feeling judged and feeling like he can't figure out how to bring more pleasure to his woman that he ends up just kind of dialing down and disconnecting and becoming unavailable. But it's not because he doesn't want that also. It's because he doesn't want to experience himself as inadequate again. Because at the end of the day, we really all do have, well, most likely the same goals to have happy, healthy, successful relationships. So it's just about how you're going to get there. Exactly. And if someone is listening, if you're listening and you feel like, no, no, I'm really motivated to improve our marriage and my partner isn't, my first question is, well, can you ask what they want in a way that they feel safe giving you their deepest, honest answer? Mm. Because how we listen contributes a lot to how our partners answer our questions. Absolutely. Alexandra, I think that this was a really interesting conversation and we talked about about a lot of things that I wasn't 
planning to, uh, but you're a very intriguing individual. And I appreciate you sharing so much, not only about your work and what you do, but about you personally as well. Do you feel like we talked about all the things you wanted to? I feel like we talked about the important things because what I want every listener to know is that having a fantastic relationship is a learnable skill and any attention you put on improving your relationship with yourself and your relationship with your partner is going to bring a massive return on that investment because it will immediately make things better for your children, your family, and of course, you. Trickle down effect. Trickle down and then trickle back up. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I love it. (laughs) Alexander, where can listeners learn more about you, find your book, listen to your podcast, all that fun stuff? The Intimate Marriage Podcast. I have a lot of conversations just like this one. So the Intimate Marriage Podcast and then the IntimateMarriagePodcast.com will take you to everything else. My book, Working With Me, The Aligned and Hot Marriage Program. You're welcome to contact me with any questions. So the Intimate Marriage Podcast and the IntimateMarriagePodcast.com. Lovely. Thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciated our conversation. Thank you, Kelsey. It's my honor. And to all of the listeners, thank you for joining as well. I invite you to tune in again next week for another insightful conversation. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. See you next time.